theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hello, Dr. Joy. Hello, Dr. Amy. How are you? I'm doing really well. We are stepping into a different space today. Yeah, it is different. I mean, it's different in a good way and a bad way. I think for me, the fact that we see it as being a different space is not such a good thing. You know, this should be a very normal and natural space for us, but ignorance is bliss. I am very happy about the conversation that we're going to have today. I'm very happy to be enlightened by our next guest. And we often don't talk about religious studies as it pertains to our public education spaces. And I think that's what fascinates me so much is I'm always curious in what happens in private schools and how our students taught and what can we learn to bring into our teacher education programs that would be beneficial. So what are some of those tough conversations and what are some examples of addressing complex or controversial issues? Uh So let's let's get to it. Dr. Rizwan Ali has his MA in curriculum and instruction and a doctorate in leadership. Dr. Ali is the religious director at the Islamic Center of Naperville, responsible for three different centers, in fact, with over 4,000 families, where he utilizes education as a tool to build understanding across religious, cultural, and socioeconomic barriers. His goal is to assist people in developing the whole personality through education and He addresses the holistic needs of families in addition to religious studies. He also teaches social science and religion in grades 7 through 12 at Islamic school. So welcome to our podcast, Dr. Ali. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. Welcome. Glad to see you again. You know, before we get started, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the shooting in Texas yesterday afternoon. I am still shaken by it, the fact that we have a mental health crisis in our country and that we also have an issue of respecting one another when it comes to differences. And so that's why it is so important that we have the sometimes uncomfortable conversations and we're happy that you are here today. I'm looking forward to you enlightening us on a number 
of subjects today as we talk about from cultural values and how that's implemented to how we best serve our Muslim students. So I'm looking forward to our enlightening and uncomfortable conversation today. So thank you for joining us. I wanna get started. If you could tell us about your journey in education and what kind of directed you to serve in your role? Because you're serving in two roles. Can you talk about that? Yeah, to be honest, I didn't really like school that much growing up. And it's interesting that I went into social studies because I didn't like social studies in high school. But when I went to college, I one of the professors there kind of changed my perspective on history and social sciences as a whole. So I decided to pursue that because I felt like the way that he presented it was very engaging and it really drew me to something that I would never have thought that I would have loved. So that's one of the reasons I went into education, like social sciences. The reason I decided to pursue Islamic education and religious studies is because 9-11 happened when I was in high school. And I saw people talking about the faith that I knew and I loved in a misinformed manner. So I felt like it was my responsibility to be, to learn and to come back and to be able to teach my faith in a proper manner to those who were misrepresenting it and misunderstanding it and talking about it in a way that I knew was not true. So that was the start of my journey. And then after that, you know, I wanted to go and pursue, you know, further education, both in the social sciences, academic realm, and then also in the religious sciences and Islamic studies realm. So I did end up going traveling overseas to Egypt for a number of years. And that helps me understand and get a firmer ground in the Arabic language and Islamic sciences. And I also continued my educational studies of pursuing a master's in curriculum instruction and a doctorate in educational leadership as well. Can, can you talk about, Amy, just for a moment, your Arabic language, since you mentioned that? Did you grow up with that Arabic language or is that something you learned later? Or did you learn to embrace it later? So uh, as a Muslim, there are certain practices and prayers that we have to know in Arabic. But I am, my parents are from India, and I was born and raised in the United States. So I did not know Arabic as a language. Many of our sacred texts are in Arabic. So I was learning a little bit here and there in Islamic school and, and private school. But I really got a grasp of the language when I went to Egypt and I was in the proper environment for a number of years. And the university that I went to, the medium of instruction was all Arabic. So I had to learn the language at institutes and try to master the language as best as I could before applying to the university because the medium of instruction, the teachers were uh, all speaking Arabic. We over there, they had oral exams and written exams, which are all in Arabic. So I was able to go into the institute, be in the right environment to be able to improve my knowledge of the language. So I want to keep going down the pathway of social science and religious studies. Tell us about the intersection of your role as a teacher of both. So I think it's very unique and important because some of the social sciences that we teach are history, which is very important because I think that there are certain scenarios that, that have taken place in history that the regions might be different, but there's, you know, they say history repeats itself. So sometimes when I see the 
situations of taking place in India, for example, right now, with some of the discrimination that's taking place, this isn't the first time that minorities have been subjected to cruel uh, treatment. And, you know, some of the people are saying that that's on the way to the genocide. But when you study about the Hutus and the Tutsis, for example, you can make a lot of parallels. You can make a lot of parallels between how uh, the Nazi propaganda was taking place before the Holocaust and which eventually led to the Holocaust. So it's very important that we draw these parallels and these connections between history and try to learn from our past and understand that sometimes, yes, people will manipulate religion, people manipulate media, people manipulate economics to be able to justify their own agendas and religion. And, uh, you know, it's important for us to understand that all religions fundamentally call people to being better. But unfortunately, across the religious spectrum, there are people that will try to manipulate the teachings of any religion to justify their own nefarious personal means. Amy and I were talking about the U.S. being a melting pot, and I don't think either one of us really subscribe to a melting pot. So I always call it like a vegetable stew Hmm. where you put all these wonderful ingredients together and then you can still identify them instead of a melting pot where you put everything together and it comes out assimilated as one thing. You know, with vegetable stew, I can still see my carrots. I can still see my peas and my celery and I can still taste them, but together they make a wonderful flavor. So we have our own identity and some unison. And so many, so often we see young folks that they shy away from their culture, sometimes even embarrassed about their culture, and they don't want to share their gifts and their differences with the rest of the world. And tell us about some of the culturally diverse activities that you implement at the center, and why is that so important for Talk about the age group that you work with as well. So at the Islamic Center, we work from the youngest in the community till our seniors, right? So we have a variety of groups and projects. We think of the earlier, we have a three-year-old program at the school and four-year-old program, but we also have all the way up until seniors programs as well and everything in between. So we have program for elementary students, middle school students. Um, high school students, college, young professionals. So we have a variety of activities. And it's not not just about the religious and prayers and scriptural studies, but we also have Toastmasters to help improve public speaking. We have Gavel Club. We have Taekwondo. We have basketball. We have tutoring. We have SAT prep. We have Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. So it's a very robust community. And sometimes we just have different aspects where we come together and have food and special engagements and speaking seminars. And we also have a free health clinic built into one of our centers. We also have a area, our, our mosque, one of the rooms in our mosque serves as a polling station for members of the greater community to come in and to vote. So there's a lot of activity that's going on. We recently started a diversity uh, equity uh, initiative to bring people more in from the community. Because if you look at the Muslim community, it's very, very vast and people from a lot of ethnic backgrounds. But unfortunately, sometimes in certain mosques and certain Islamic centers, people from a certain ethnicity start to gravitate towards each other. It's okay. But we don't want to feel everybody to feel welcome and, and learn from each other's experiences. 
So we have a lot of people, we did it in Ramadan, we had a special, you know, iftar or post fast meal that was dedicated and, and preferred brought to us by the Uzbek community. The Bangladeshi community came together to provide it and come together with the whole community. So now we're trying to, exactly as you mentioned, is for people to celebrate their culture, their ethnicity with a greater community. Because at the end of the day, we feel like when we're able to share our culture with others, everybody benefits, right? And one of the things that you you mentioned earlier about uh, mental health, and one of the things I found is, a second generation American Muslim is that like my parents were from India, they migrated over here and I was born and raised here. So what happens is that sometimes people like my age growing up, when we go to India, they'll say, oh, look at that American kid. When we go and we're here, they'll be like, he's not really American. So some of the writers and authors have talked about this and they call it twofold inferiority right? Because we don't feel like we're whole in America or in our parents' native land. And that does cause a lot of mental stress. And that does cause a lot of issues at times. But uh, if people don't get help with that, then it can cause a sense of resentment to both. But now there's a lot of people that are speaking about this and becoming more open and welcoming. And as our community matures and grows, we want to be able for the mosque and our schools to be centers where people can feel welcomed and can feel like it's not that they're inferior the twofold inferiority, rather they have the best of different cultures and they can come and add value to wherever they are. Yeah, as a descendant of slaves, I completely understand what you're talking about. Oh, Amy, I'll just keep going. <laughs> oh, so I do want to know, because we're going to get into some things, but before we get into that, I want to talk about sending out every week I send out this uh, newsletter from the Illinois State of Board of Education, and it had something very interesting in it, some research that we've been following about the diversity of teachers, and that Illinois, like many other states, do not have great diversity amongst its teachers. And so what the research is saying is that when students have teachers that look like them, they benefit academically and social emotionally. And so there is a need to increase the diversity of teachers. Can you talk about why it's important or if you feel that it's important that Muslim students have are exposed to Muslim teachers and also that non-Muslims are exposed to Muslim teachers. Yeah, and I think that's a very good point. And I think that it is very beneficial for Muslim students to be exposed to Muslim teachers and non-Muslim uh, students to be exposed to Muslim teachers. For the Muslim perspective, it's sometimes when we fast during the month of Ramadan or we need to pray at school during the winter months, it can feel to remember our students that they're the odd ones out or they're different. People don't understand. People may ask questions and people, generally speaking, people are more supportive. But if they see a teacher that they can go, that it's going through the same challenges, they can resonate more with this teacher and the teacher, they can go to the teacher and if anything needs to be brought up to the administration or others, the teachers, uh, you know, with them going through some of the same things as they are. So I think that's one point that's very beneficial. And then I think that one of the, another very important benefit of non-Muslim students being exposed to Muslim teachers is that 
there was different studies that were done that the majority of people in certain areas of the country never interact with the Muslim person. And when they don't interact with the Muslim person on a personal basis, what happens is that they kind of feed into the stereotypes or whatever is being presented to them. But when they interact with people, a lot of those you know, the stereotypes or the misinformation is dispelled by people saying, yeah, I know I heard something on the news, I heard something on the media, but the Muslim people that I know, they're not like that, right? They love America, they love you know, peace, they're wanting good for each other. So I think interacting with people from within the Muslim community and outside the Muslim community is extremely important, especially with students, because students are going through those stages where they're the ones that are going to be leading the future. And they're the ones that are sometimes what, what they're, well, if, if I was just teaching my students earlier today, if they don't work on their behavior, it's very hard to change it later on in life. But if they're taught that, you know, how to have manners and respect and love for each other and respect for each other and courtesy towards each other at a young age, this is something that can stay with them throughout their lives. You bring up a good point about the interaction with non-Muslim students and that interaction with Muslim teachers in the different religious seasons. What do you do to prepare non-Muslim teachers for those different religious seasons and the interactions and the um, activities and the other experiences that the students are bringing into the classroom? So a few years ago, we had a event with a parent diversity action committee that exists in our districts, which is very beneficial. And the superintendents of the schools, the principals of the schools, they attended. So we had a, uh, we invited them to a Ramadan iftar. Ramadan is the month that Muslims fast during the days in. And at that time, we had an opportunity to break uh, their fast with them and they asking questions. And from that time, we were able to interact with the teachers and the students now record videos, preparing the teachers ahead of time, a couple of weeks, three weeks, that what are some of the challenges the students face during the month of Ramadan and how the teachers and the school can be more accommodating for them. So what is a typical student schedule like? We have fasting during the day and praying during the night. And, you know, sometimes there's, there's hunger, there's tired, there's a sleep is a bigger issue. People focus more on the food, but a lot of times the lack of sleep and the waking up of a pre-dawn meal early on could be as early as three o'clock, four o'clock in certain different times of the year and not even having water. All of these things help the, now the information that's being passed on the students recording the videos, the dialogue that's taking place has become very accommodating and, and put us in a better place than we were several years ago. So I think having those proactive conversations before time is important. Now the district comes to the mosque or has interactions with us asking us when are our holidays going to be to try to make sure that, you know, teachers are well aware of that, that Muslim students may not be there at that time to make sure that exams aren't scheduled at that time. So I think this has been a great, we've made leaps and bounds and uh, tools have been willing to accommodate and work with us in ways that weren't happening in the past. Oh, I really want you to expand on that because this is really good information because we have a large Muslim population uh, at Governor State University, specifically in the uh, College of Education. And in the College of Education, because of accreditation and other things, we have a continuous improvement process. We are always examining data 
And we pull that data apart. And a lot of times we pull it apart by ethnicity, right? And it tells us a lot of things about students' achievement and progress, all of those things. One thing that we're not able to pull out is our Muslim student population. I do think that it is a unique population. We find that they are in affinity groups sometimes, right? As you said, sometimes they stick together. Sometimes there's things that they share in common, things that may impact their education. And yet we can't pull data to find out what's going on with them as a group. And, and that's, to me, a significant, not in, because I want to see, treat them as different, but because we want to serve them better. And so I do have a question about what are ways that we can identify our Islamic population? How do you think they want to be identified? Do they want to be identified? How do we respect their differences and uniqueness and also the similarities? And because we want to better identify them just so we could better serve them. We want to learn more about the things that you're sharing with us now. Yeah, I think one of the things that I would recommend is to have conversations with the Islamic centers because a lot of the Muslim community gravitates towards Islamic centers. And the one thing that you'll learn at that time is that the practices of Muslims are extremely diverse as there are people of other faiths. So when I talk about the month of Ramadan, sometimes teachers will think that, you know, all Muslim students fast, but as in every faith, there are some students that will fast. There are some students are more practicing than others. Uh, there are certain exceptions that people have due to illness, due to certain conditions and circumstances where they're exempt from fasting. So I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Definitely. It's a challenge because yeah. there's, there's no ethnicity or race. There's people from all over different backgrounds that practice Islamic faith. But I think that especially trying to plug into some different centers, if you see the geographic population of where your students come from, then I think talking to religious centers in those geographic locations, I think that would be a good starting place because they can tell you a little bit more about the pulse of the community because each community has a different, uh, the, the culture of the communities are different, even though the underlying principles are the same. Each community has a different culture. Some imams will be younger, some imams will be older and imams are the people who are like the religious officials of the community. And that usually reflects the diversity of the community and some communities are even, I'm in Naperville, and Naperville it's, as a whole, it's a very large city. So mm -hmm. the, one of our centers is closer, and the, the population that attends one of our centers is generally speaking younger, whereas uh, the population that attends another one of our center on the north side or west side of Naperville is, is relatively speaking older. So that just the diversity within the community is there. And that's something that it's, it's hard to kind of identify, but the people who are plugged in and attend the centers most frequently, they, after a number of years, they can kind of get used to it and they would be the best people to give that guidance and provide that information that, yes, this is just a general trend, but we do have people like this and we do have people like that. We do have people that might follow, you know, sometimes one calendar, they might fast uh, a day early versus another group of people that might fast a day late. So all of this information, it's very hard to just identify unless you have somebody who has gone through it, through it and through experience of the community. I think those are the best people to have maybe come speak to the people doing the research and the data, uh, collecting the data, so they have a better understanding of the context of the students and how they practice.
Right, because uh, unfortunately, we do not have a data selection by religion, mm-hmm. and we have it by race. And most in our institution, anyway, identify as being white, unless they're Black Muslims, but most of them identify as being white. So it's just very difficult to separate them by data. I, I hear you, and I think it's going to require more conversations with our student. We're fortunate, Amy and I have both had Muslim, lots of Muslim students in our classroom. And so we learn a lot from them. I think my first, and, and I have my husband and I, we have a really good Muslim friend, but he's been a friend so long, you forget that there's any differences. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I had female students in my classroom for the first time remotely with their hair down. Hmm. So that was actually exciting for me because we didn't have any males in the class. And so since we were remote and they weren't exposed to the public, I was able to see their beautiful hair and gave them the opportunity to share why we were able to see their hair. No, it's really interesting. It's very good because I think that even small gestures like that, I think you being given them the opportunity to share, I think uh, for those that want to, I think that is very welcome. And people, as we were talking about, I think they're just looking for the platforms to be able to express themselves and their religious identity. And that is something that it's very appreciated. I think that's really important, offering that open platform and those opportunities to welcome voices in, as opposed to silencing voices. And we started this conversation today on Joy brought up the shooting that happened and we have been inundated with so much violence. So much of it stems from controversial views and very complex issues that for adults are even very difficult to understand. Like why does someone seek to harm another person or another group of people based on that perception that they might have. Now, how do you address complex, controversial issues that may cause confusion for your students or, or especially you deal with some young students too? Yeah, I think that's very important. And uh, when you're asking that question, the first thing that was coming to my mind is it depends on the age of the students. When they're younger, it's do they have the intellectual capacity to be able to make certain distinctions or do we have to keep things very simple for them? And at a certain age group, you know, we would tell them that this is what we believe in as Muslims and this is what we do. But there will be people that practice things a little bit different. And that is something that, you know, as in an early elementary, we do have these conversations because Some people will say, okay, but my parents don't do that, or my grandparents don't do that. Some of them may be in the same faith. Some of them maybe have relatives or people in their family that are from other faiths, right? And there's certain different practices that we have, different holidays, different practices. So that's something that we institute that just because we do something doesn't necessarily mean other people have, everybody doesn't necessarily have to do the same thing. But as they get older, it's like, okay, then the whys start to come in. Okay, and we tried to explore. This is what we do as Muslims, or why do we say that we do that as Muslims? What's the scriptural basis of that? What is the religious context of that? Why do why why was that done, or is that for a certain place or certain time, or is that something that is across time? 
And then we also look at, okay, now other, other faiths or other religions, other groups of people that may do things a little bit different than us when it comes to certain complex issues. Why do they do that? What's their justification for doing that? I think that it's unfair and too simplistic just for people sometimes, and, and, and it's, it's un, unfair. And the reason I say unfair is because if people just said about our faith that they just do that because of X, Y, Z, and there's no reason that they do this, they just do that, then that's not a fair representation of our faith. And similarly, I wouldn't want people to misrepresent my faith. I can't do that to other faiths. So I say, look, we don't have to agree necessarily with what people are doing and why they do certain things. But the question is, I want you to try to put yourself into their shoes and say that what's the basis of them having this justification and rationalization for either believing in that or doing certain actions, right? We can agree to disagree, but I would like you to try to step into their shoes because when we step into somebody else's shoes, we may end up disagreeing and that's not an issue. But then the respect factor comes in and we try to say, okay, look, I don't agree with that but I can kind of see where they're coming from based on their paradigm and based on their principles. And I think that's a sign of maturity that we have to instill in our students. And what I found out throughout the years is that our students are intellectually very mature and they can handle things if they're coached in the right way to be able to, they'll surprise us. Sometimes people will be like, are you sure you want to do that with high school students? Like they're doing very complex mathematical problems and equations. And these are things that, they have the capacity to do that, but they need to be coached and they need to be helped and kind of you know, walk through the process. And, but once they're there, we're not only preparing them to deal with uh, piecemeal issues, we're teaching them how to think about things from a different angle, different angles and different perspectives, and that will help them throughout their lives. So something difficult, you probably weren't born when 9-11 occurred. Dr. Ali. <laughs> I was. I was in high school then. You were in high school. In high school, yes. How did your, were you in a public high school or Islamic high school? I was in an Islamic high school. I was in Islamic high school. How, how did life change? Do you remember how life changed for you? And how have we evolved, you know, in this education setting since then? So when I was in high school, um, at that time, right, the whole Afghanistan and Taliban and Osama bin Laden, things were going on and people were attributing that with Islam and Muslims, fortunately. And just a couple of years after that, I was doing my student teaching at a public school and then I did get called bin Laden by one of the students. Um, so that type of, and, and a lot of our Muslim brothers and sisters went through similar type of experiences. So I think as a whole, and that's one of the reasons I mentioned earlier that I did go into religious studies is because of people's misinformation and being able to represent the religion in a better way. But I think that as a whole, people have moved forward in certain regards where there is more tolerance, there is more uh, dialogue and discussion that takes place. But I think there are still segments and pockets where we need to have a lot more work that's to be done. And I feel like some of these things are cyclical because in 2001, when 9-11 did take place, you know, there, there was hostilities and there was ignorance that took place at that time. But then I remember in 2011, when they were calling the Grand Zero Mosque, and there was a lot of Islamophobia that took place, and it was baseless. 
And then after that, it went down a little bit. And then with the rhetoric of a few years ago, with people trying to talk about the Muslim ban and things of that sort, it picked up again. So unfortunately, there, there's ebbs and flows. But I think that what I found is that relationships matter and personal relationships matter. And as we mentioned, being in the environment where there are people that are interacting with either teachers, coworkers, colleagues uh, that are Muslim, it makes a big impact. And I think that, you know, for me, I also I work with the Naperville Police Department as a chaplain. And when people, you know, see me or interact with me, and I'm just trying not to help them with their situations or difficulties, and I'm not doing it based on a religious basis because they don't share the same faith, but I'm there to help them grieve or get whatever spiritual assistance that they need. I think that, that destigmatizes some of the perceptions that some people have towards Islam and Muslims. We are talking to Dr. Rizwan Ali and learning so much about the intersection of religious studies and education and bias in media. I want to talk more about that. How do you have those conversations or what are some examples of classroom conversations in which teachers have sought guidance? Like, what do I do? What do I say? There's this news article that just came out or there's this event that just happened. I don't know how to address this in my classroom. Right. When you have students to feel like, why don't they like me? Yeah, I think, sorry. Um, Some of the teachers have reached out and there's certain, you know, again, there's perspectives, there's different ways that people perceive things and present things, right? So sometimes people will say, oh, but they quoted a, a verse from the Quran or they quoted a statement of the Prophet Muhammad. But when sometimes people misquote things or take things out of context, so when they come from uh, to us as a religious scholar who's studied that, okay, I'll be, okay, that's the quote that they gave you. Read the quote before, read the verse before, read the verse after. And this is something that can happen in any religious text and scripture. Uh, people can take things out of context and try to yeah, kind of demonize it or try to make it as, you know, as ammunition to, against people. So it's like, okay, like if somebody comes to me, that's the article, that person had an agenda, think about where that person's coming from, what's their goal and objective, and then try to provide an alternative perspective or try to provide a neutral or more balanced perspective. I think that's the way that people approach it. And I appreciate the teachers who do reach out. And a lot of teachers will use these as teachable moments. They'll, they'll present these articles and they'll say, look, how do you, what do you think about that, right? And then they'll present another article, you know, combating the article, and they'll have the students exercise and see, okay, when you see something, how do you respond? What are some of your initial thoughts? And yes, how do you get through that disappointment, anger, frustration? Because in the reality is that you can't control everything, how you respond to certain things. So these are some of the things that, you know, will help us be better as a whole if we approach it the right way and use these as teachable moments. Okay, I know you have students coming in. Amy, I have a final question. Amy, you probably have a final question. I just wanted to mention that in Illinois, we're implementing the culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. That's our charge over the next couple of years to implement it into all educator preparation programs, not just for teachers, but also for school support personnel and administrators. 
at some level, schools will need to implement that as well. What, what is your hope that you think we could get out of implementing such, such a thing as culturally responsive teaching and leading standards? I think the goal that I would want to have from a program like this is people to be more empathetic and people to try to see things from different perspectives and ultimately just be teach people to be more kind, right? Not rushing to judgment, not being judgmental, trying to help, right? One of the goals that we have of Islamic education is to try to make ourselves and others better. And I think that this is all a part of the goals and the means of doing that is that when we're more culturally responsive, we don't have that perspective of the other is superior, inferior. We just have the perspective of what's the, what, how can we learn and grow for ourselves and, and provide growth to others. And there might be some things, and, and there's a verse that is mentioned in the Quran where God says, oh mankind, we have created from one male and one female and put you into nations and tribes so that you may get to know one another and learn from one another. And that's the perspective that we should have from that, you know, the, when we were talking about culturally responsive is that when I'm exposed to a different culture, it may be that there's something that's missing in myself and my practices that that other culture has that can make me a better person. And I might be able to grow and provide growth to others by learning about that. I just want to say that you've mentioned several different times, seeing things from another person's perspective, walking in another person's shoes, and now Feeling that piece that might be missing in ourselves just by learning about another culture. If only we could all embrace that way of thinking and that critical literacy that is so important when we are reading articles that all tend toward a bias of some sort. We all have a stance. And if we can just balance that, with multiple perspectives, we can get a whole world view. And I very much appreciate you sharing that with us today. Thank you very much. I think it's very important because there are certain situations and circumstances that we all face and we will all face that cross every one of our boundaries and, and barriers, right? There's a drug issue. There's a housing issue. There's discrimination. There's injustice. Yeah. This doesn't just affect a particular community. All of us are going through these challenges. All of us are going through these struggles. And some of these are so important that the only way that we're going to find these solutions, if we all come together and work towards it, and each of us may have a part of the solution, but collectively when we come together, it's going to take our collective capacity to be able to overcome these significant challenges. Yes. And the only way we can do that is to be comfortable with each other. So thank you. Thank you very much. Awesome. You're welcome. I'm honored to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. 
uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.